Father, what great words we just sang. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. And may that ring true in each one of our hearts this morning, even as we open your word. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want our hearts to be open to what you have to teach us this morning. So guide our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Aristotle Onassis was a Greek shipping tycoon and one of the wealthiest men of the 20th century. When he died in 1975, he left his daughter Christina with an inheritance of a million dollars a month. Now, I'm sure you can think of a lot of things to do with a million dollars a month, and so could she. She had a 325-foot yacht. She had a private jet that she would fly from where she lived to America when she needed Diet Coke. That's a level of wealth that you and I probably can't comprehend. And we might be tempted to think, you know, if I had that kind of money, my life would be way better. I mean, think of all the adventures that I could go on, the, the stuff I could buy, the trips I could take. My life would be better. That's not how it worked for Christina. She died at the age of 37 from a heart attack because of a terrible diet, prescription medication abuse, and as someone in tradition said, too much Diet Coke. (laughs) The wealthier she became, the lonelier she became. Our reaction to an account like this might be, you know, I don't have money like that, and if I did have money like that, I would not spend it that way. And that might be true, although having a private jet to fly to Hawaii to pick up a fresh bag of coffee beans does sound kind of nice, right? But when we compare ourselves to the ultra-wealthy, we might feel a little impoverished. But when we place ourselves on the global stage compared to literally billions of people around the world, our perspective begins to change. The median household income in Wausau, Wisconsin is $42,000. So I'll use that as a benchmark in a couple statistics this morning. A person who makes $42,000 a year ranks in the top half of a percent of the wealthiest people in the globe. Not top percent, top half of a percent. In other words, if this room represented the entire globe, say there's 600 people in here this morning, that income would represent one of the three wealthiest people. And to put that number into perspective, think about it this way, $42,000 would pay uh, the salary of 188 doctors in Pakistan for one year. 188 physicians. It would take an average worker in Indonesia 56 years to make $42,000. I don't provide these statistics to guilt trip us or to make us feel guilty because we have too much but to provide a little bit of perspective because it's so easy to scroll down social media or to look across the street and to throw a pity party for ourselves because we don't have as much stuff or as much money as somebody else. But the truth is, just by where we live in the world, we're not just above average. We're wealthy. Even someone making minimum wage in Wausau is in the top 5% of the wealthiest people around the globe. So I say that because as Paul talks to the rich in our passage this morning, as he exhorts the wealthy, he's talking to you and he's talking to me just by where we live in the world. And is there anything wrong with that? No. But it's a privilege. It's an opportunity. 
And with that opportunity comes a responsibility. And we're going to look at a great text at the end of James, end of James, end of 1 Timothy, where he talks about our finances. And some of you are thinking, you know, Pastor Jeff is gone and he sent our young adults pastor up here to talk about money because we need money. Some of you are maybe thinking, you know, the only time I've heard a sermon about money in a church that I've been in in the past is when the church was short on cash. Well, thankfully, neither of those things are true this morning. We're part of a church here at Highland that has a history of financial stewardship. We have year after year after year of being in the green. And part of that is because so many here are so faithful to give generously. And we we don't take that for granted. So don't worry. We're not going to pass the plates again at the end of our message this morning. There's not a box in the back where we can put an extra 20 in. That's, that's not the application. And I'm thankful that our text is so much broader and so much bigger than that. We want to ask God, how can I use my money to honor you? That's a little bigger than just putting a 20 in the offering plate. Because instead of honoring God with our finances, it's so easy to allow money to be a stressor in our lives. Money causes stress all the time. It's the second leading cause of divorce following infidelity in our country today. Money, it breaks apart family and relationships and businesses. So our goal this morning is not to induce stress when we talk about money, it's to reduce stress. Because when we trust God with our finances, it provides relief. It provides freedom. So let me get us caught up to speed at the, uh, where we are in God's Word, looking at 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and Timothy was his mentee, his disciple, the guy that he was training to be a pastor. So Paul left Timmy in Ephesus to lead the church there, and you'll remember what he said to him in, in these books. He said, Timmy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. He said, train yourself for godliness. He gave him the moral requirements for church leaders. He talked about interpersonal relationships in the church. And then at the end of 1 Timothy, he even talks about how we should spend our money, how we should use the resources God's given us. So follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I mean, even in the opening clause of the first verse, Paul makes a statement. He says, as for the rich in this present age, he's saying just because someone has money today does not mean they're going to have money in eternity. Just because someone has money today does not signify God's blessing on their lives. But it's easy when we have money to become financially prideful, to find our sense of worth, our sense of value, not just in the money that we have, but even the friends that we have who have money. That's a big deal in our world today. Our world places an emphasis on being friends with people who have a lot of money. But that's not how it's supposed to be in the church. Remember what Paul said in Galatians, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's no male or female, we're all one in Christ. The relational fences that our world builds by money should be non-existent within the church today. When we find ourselves tempted to treat someone differently because of the amount of money in their checking account or the kind of car that they drive, we have to remind ourselves, that really doesn't matter. We're all one 
in Christ. There's no place for partiality in God's, financial partiality in God's church. Practically speaking, that's exactly why our elders and our pastors at our church don't know how much people give. We don't have access to that kind of information. Because if we did, it'd be far too easy, even subconsciously, to show partiality to people who give more than others. There's no place for financial partiality within the church. And ultimately, we find our pride in our money when we place our trust and our hope in our finances. And that's exactly what Paul is exhorting us not to do. We have to place our trust in God, not money. And if you're taking notes this morning, that's our first takeaway. Trust in God, not money. And frankly, the more money that we have, the easier it is to not trust in God. Things like Life insurance, health insurance, a pension plan, a 401k, a salary, a bonus, the car we drive, the house that we have, all of those things, they can insulate us and create this bubble that carry us through life. And we don't realize, we don't, ha- we don't feel like we have to daily depend on God to provide the house that we live in or, or the, the money that we have or the food on our table. But we have to understand that the money we have is so much more fragile than we might think. I mean, think of Confederate currency for example. In the middle of the Civil War, Confederate currency was just as powerful as any other type of money. What'd they use Confederate currency for at the end of the war? To start fires. It was old newspaper. I mean, imagine someone who had all of their wealth in Confederate currency. They were worth nothing. The only certainty about material wealth is its uncertainty. It could be here today and gone tomorrow. The market could crash. We could lose our retirement. Nothing's guaranteed. And even if we don't lose any number of material possessions, we can't take our stuff with us when we die. Maybe you've seen that bumper sticker, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Ever seen that before? I think a better bumper sticker would be, whoever dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) Because we can't take our stuff with us when we die. It's not a contest to see who can acquire the most stuff. Because the pursuit of wealth as that ultimate thing is ever elusive. It might provide this mirage that it's going to provide the satisfaction that our hearts desire, but it will always leave us wanting more. It will never satisfy. We cannot believe the lie that a $15,000 bonus or a 15% pay raise or a $15 million lottery ticket will provide the satisfaction that our hearts desire. It might appease our appetite temporarily, but it will never satisfied completely. And if that was the case, if money did satisfy, then you and I might expect the wealthiest among us to be the happiest. But that's just not the case. Listen to these quotes from uh, some of the wealthiest men in the history of our country. Henry Ford said, I was happier doing a mechanic's job. Hmm. John Rockefeller said, I've made many millions, but they've brought me no happiness. Carnegie mentioned that millionaires seldom smile. Friends, money can't buy our happiness. And that's exactly what we see in God's Word. I mean, think of Proverbs chapter 23. It says this, Don't toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. For when your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings like an eagle toward heaven. That's a funny visual of our money sprouting wings, right? But it gives us a picture of the elusive nature of pursuing wealth. 
The pursuit of wealth is sort of like a Wisconsinite pursuing warm weather in April and May, right? <laughs> we get our shorts out like we did yesterday, and today, who knows, it could snow tomorrow, right? Nothing is guaranteed. The pursuit of the chase of that warm weather is ever elusive. It's the same with our money. Chasing money as that ultimate thing, that ultimate tool of satisfaction in our lives, it's an elusive, endless, joyless, fruitless chase. But since toiling to acquire wealth is fruitless, what does that mean? Does that mean we just abandon our savings? Does it mean we just start spending frivolously? I don't think so. I think Paul anticipates those questions and he answers them for us in verse 17. He says, God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, Paul didn't exhort the wealthy just to liquidize their assets and to give away everything that they had. No, he says that we're to set our hope on God who gives us gifts to enjoy. Because God's not anti-fun. Every good and perfect gift is from where? From above. Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. God's a good father who's given us good gifts to enjoy. Do we see the paradigm shift here? It's not trusting in our money. It's not finding pride in our wealth, but it's trusting in God who's given us good gifts to enjoy and to be grateful for. I mean, just think of the various possessions and the blessings that the Lord's provided for us. That's the car we drive, the house we live in. Maybe it's dinner with our family at a nice restaurant or enjoying the beautiful weather this afternoon, right? Those are blessings from the Lord. And in the midst of those blessings, it should fill our hearts with gratitude for our Father who gives good gifts to His children. And these are gifts that you and I should never feel entitled to. I mean, what parent likes giving a good, or likes giving a Christmas gift to an entitled child? Wouldn't a parent much rather give a gift to a thankful child for Christmas? But I think we can do the same thing to God, feeling entitled to that bonus or that pay raise or that new car or that new house. But these are gifts that God hasn't promised will be here tomorrow. So we can enjoy them today without feeling entitled to them. And in the midst of the things on earth that bring us joy, they should fill us with gratitude for the goodness of our Father. Enjoying God's good gifts doesn't need to be divorced from our relationship with Him. And we can all say, God, thank you for providing for my needs. If God's blessed us financially, we can trust in God through the finances that he's provided, knowing that our home is a gift from him and thanking him for it, knowing that each meal is a blessing of his provision and thanking him for it, knowing that each vacation we might take or each day off we might have is a blessing of God's provision and thanking him for it. God's been so good and so faithful to us, and he's given us so many gifts. And in the midst of these gifts, he asks us, He's exhorted us not not to hold the things that we have close to our chest, not to hold them with closed, tight fists, but to be generous, to hold what we have with open palms. That's what we see in the second verse in our passage. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Let's zoom in on that last phrase, to be generous and ready to share. Paul's not just talking about the practical action of giving here. He's taking it a step deeper and looking at the posture of our hearts. Do we have hearts that are generous, that are quick to give, that are eager to give? Or do we have hearts that are selfish and unwilling to share? And we have to understand that there's a difference between wisdom and selfishness, right? It might be wise not to give money to every person that asks. It might be wise to develop a budget or some sort of savings, but those things don't fly in the face of generosity. 
Instead, are we willing to share the gifts that God has given to us? Because having money, it's not sinful, it's not wrong, but it's a responsibility. And we have to understand that God will hold us eternally accountable for how we spend the money he's given us. In reality, the things that we have, it's not really ours in the first place. Everything that we have is God's. We're just stewards of the gifts he's given to us. So the question or the prayer, God, help me use my money in a responsible way, might not be the right thing to pray. Instead, we could pray, God, how can I use your money in a responsible way, in a way that will honor you? And God's request, his ask for us in regards to the money that he's given to us is that we're generous and ready to share. Hmm. That's our second takeaway this morning. We have to practice generosity, not selfishness. Practice generosity, not selfishness. And some of us here might feel like we've got a lot to give. Others might feel like the margins are a little tight right now. But either way, with what we do have, are we quick and generous to share? This text says that we're to do good. In other words, to use our money in a positive way, benefiting God's kingdom and benefiting other people. And this time of year has a tangible application. Some of us just received a check from the federal government, a tax return. Others of us wrote a check. But either way, the principle applies. When we receive a larger sum of money like that, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, look at this house project that I could do, this appliance that I could buy, this down payment that I could put on this new car, this new boat, or this new jet ski. Or do we think of a way that we could maybe be a blessing to God's kingdom or a blessing to somebody else? Not that we need to give away our entire tax return. But maybe there's a way we could use a portion of that sort of money to be a blessing to God's kingdom or blessing to somebody else. And some of us here might have more opportunity than others of us to be generous. But genuine generosity, it's not found in the amount that we give, but it's found more in the way that we give. What Jesus reminds us in Luke chapter 21, he says this, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. The widow in this account shows a true heart of generosity. She didn't give out of her abundance. She gave everything she had. She gave her first fruits. First fruits is a term from the Old Testament that has this idea of giving to God the first cut of the harvest rather than the leftovers. Do we give God the first cut? We give God the leftovers. I had a story a couple weeks ago about a friend of mine. I'll call him Josh. And uh, when Josh was growing up, he received an allowance to help with laundry. He's like five years old and he'd get a penny for every pair of socks that he folded. As you can imagine, it took years to unless his family went through a lot of socks, right? It took years to develop a savings of $5. And he went to church one Sunday morning, and the pastor talked about giving and giving to the Lord. And Josh was so excited to give to the Lord that he asked his parents, can I come back to church next week with my whole piggy bank of $5 of sock folding money and give to the Lord, right? That's eagerness, excitement to give. Now, these two accounts... I don't think are suggesting that we need to liquidize our entire savings account in the offering basket next week. But it does surface a need in our hearts. Are we quick to give? 
Are we eager to give? Are we excited to be generous? Here's a couple ideas on how we can be practically generous this week. Every week at Highland, we have a dedicated time in our service for offering, our tithes and our offerings. And we believe that we can worship God by giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures. Giving to God financially is a way that we can worship Him. And partnering with us financially here at Highland enables us to accomplish our mission and our vision to help others take that next step in their relationship with Christ. And so many here are so generous. We're so thankful for that. In the Old Testament, we have this idea of a, a tithe, which carries notion of 10%. And that could be a good benchmark for us as followers of Christ. But I think even more than that, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 9, just a great principle when we think of giving. He says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So ultimately what you and I put in the offering basket each week is between us and the Lord. Another way we can be generous is in our relationships with people that don't yet know Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we go write a check to all our friends that aren't Christians yet, but we could do things like invite people over for dinner or have a block party for our neighborhood and invite our neighbors to build relationships with them. Go out to coffee, buy somebody coffee and, and hear their story. Those are things that cost money, right? But those are also gifts that build relational bridges with people. We can use our money as leverage in our relationships with our friends that don't yet know Christ. Finally, you and I can be involved in, in missions, what God's doing around the world. There's so many missionaries that are burdened by the need to be constantly raising support. Maybe we can partner with a missionary who's doing God's work in another country. Maybe we can pray about that this week. God, what would it look like for me to support your work around the world. But even more than money, Paul talks about you and I being generous with an even more precious commodity. Verse 18, he says that we're to do good, to be rich in good, work, in good works. For us to be rich in good works doesn't require money or wealth. It doesn't require status or connections or popularity. No, being rich in good works requires our most precious commodity, which is our, our time. Some of us have more money's, money than others of us, but we all have the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. And not only will God hold us accountable for how we use the money that he's given to us, he's going to hold us accountable for how we use the time that he's given to us. And God's priority is clear, that we need to prioritize serving God over making money. And for those of you that are entrepreneurial, you understand exactly what this means. Every spare hour in a week is a spare hour to make a little extra cash. And in the area that we live, there's a lot of extra ways to earn a little extra cash, whether that's giving plasma or driving Uber. Is there anything wrong with that? Not necessarily, unless those things are getting in the way of us serving the Lord. And that's our clear encouragement from this part of the passage, that we're to prioritize serving, not gaining wealth. Prioritize serving, not gaining wealth. And really, Paul's addressing more how we spend our time. It's not just about gaining wealth, but there's so many other things that clamor for our time and our attention, whether that's school or work or sports or cell phones or social media. All of those things are asking for our time. 
And some of those things are more necessary than others. I don't think Paul's giving you high school students permission to skip school tomorrow, unless we have another snow day, which who knows? With the winter we've had, I probably shouldn't say anything like that, right? <laughs> Paul's not giving us permission, permission to show up to work two hours late tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. But I think he's asking you and I to evaluate some of the things in our life that are time consumers that aren't quite as necessary. When I ask, uh, when a young adult comes up to me and says, hey, Sam, I'm having a, t- a tough time reading the Bible. The first thing I'll say is, well, why? Why is that? The most common answer that I hear is, I'm pretty busy. Which could be true. I mean, we're, we live in a busy society. But if someone has time to watch an hour or two of TV a day or play an hour or two video games a day, but can't spend 15 minutes reading the Bible, that's not a busyness problem. That's a priorities problem. If we can make it to the golf course three times a week or we can make it to the gym five, six, seven times a week, but we can't serve in the church once or twice a month, it's not a busyness problem. That's a priorities problem. And before I point my finger, I need to look right in the mirror because I do the same thing. None of us are exempt from this battle. We all struggle with how we use our time. And when we remember that God's going to hold you and I eternally accountable for how we spend our time, that's sobering. You know, I don't think I'm going to be disappointed that I missed season 72 of Survivor or American Idol, right? (laughs) When I get to heaven, I also don't think that I'll be disappointed that I missed the midnight premiere of Ed Game. But I think I'll be disappointed of missed opportunities to share the gospel or poor time management, laziness that's resulted in stalled spiritual growth. A number of months ago, I was flying from Denver to Minneapolis, just finishing up a vacation visiting one of my brothers. And the flight was full, and I was in everyone's favorite middle seat in the back of the plane. And there was a young adult guy that came in to sit next to me. I didn't didn't know him. And you know exactly how it works when you're on a plane— that seatbelt sign comes on. You've got a captive audience for the next two hours, right? And I could feel the Holy Spirit tugging on my heart saying, hey, you know, maybe you could engage this guy in conversation. Maybe you could talk to him. Um, and, you know, I'm a young adult's pastor. This is what I do, right? I'm supposed to have spiritual conversations with a, a guy like this. But there's a TV screen right in the back of that scene in front of me. And there's this movie that I really wanted to watch. So I was presented with a decision. Do I pull out my noise-canceling headphones, put them in my ear, ignore the rest of the world for the next two hours, or do I leave them in my backpack and engage them in conversation? What did I do? I wish I could say that I left my headphones in my backpack. I didn't even finish the movie. It was too long for the flight. And as the flight landed, um, I talked to him for about five minutes. And... We had a great five-minute conversation and realized that we had a lot in common. And maybe I could have shared the gospel with him. You know, if I could go back in time, if I could rewind, I would spend those two hours a little bit differently. And my guess is, as we look back at our last week, month, year, we all probably have moments where we wish we could rewind. We wish we could play that do-over card and reinvest that time. But what can we practically do today to eliminate those moments, to live life without regrets, to invest our time well. Here's a couple ideas. One is exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. 
He provides this picture of the church being a body. And each Christian is a different member. Somebody has an eye, an ear, a mouth, a nose, starting to sound like a song, right? And each person has a different spiritual gift. Because when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, he gives us a gift, a unique spiritual gift that's meant to serve the body of Christ. And that means that if one person isn't serving, if one member of the body isn't functioning, then the body's not operating at full potential. We need each other. One of the best ways we can invest our time is by serving God's church, the body of Christ. And if this idea of a spiritual gift is new to you, or you have questions about what it means to serve at church here at Highlands, then it'd be great to meet with a pastor or an elder, one of our staff members, or even filling out the connection cards that I believe Pastor Jeff talked about this morning in our bulletins. Be a great way to take that next step in your faith. Another way we could invest our time is less family phone time and more family worship. Those phones, they're not evil, but they're close, right? And they so often distract us from real relationships with people. We settle for the virtual thing when the real thing is just right next to us. We're just both on our phones, right? What if we just take a night or two a week as a family? Take that phone and put it on silent, put it in a drawer in the kitchen, make sure it's on silent so it's not vibrating and everyone's wondering, was that my phone, right? And taking time just around the dinner table to spend time together in God's Word. Maybe to pray together. I lived with a family in California that did this really well. We'd have family dinner every Monday night, no phones. And we'd just go around and share highs and lows from the day. What went great today? What didn't go well today? We could spend time in God's Word and in prayer. It would be a great way for us to be intentionally investing our time. And, you know, if, if you're single, not married, that's something you could do by yourself. Or that's something you could do with a group of friends and intentionally invest in those around us. Those are a couple ways that we can intentionally invest in eternity. Because investing our time and money for God's purposes, it's not an earthly investment, but it's an eternal one. I think that's exactly what Paul says at the end of our text this morning. He says, the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The treasure that Paul is talking about here, it's not an earthly treasure, but it's an eternal one. When we use our money and our time God's way, we're making deposits and do our heavenly 401k. Now, uh, an advisor or financial planner here would say investing in a 401k is a good investment over time. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about an eternal investment, an eternal 401k. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is helping us understand that the things we invest in becomes the things that we value. If we invest in the here and now, then we're going to value the here and now. But if we invest in eternity, then we're going to value eternity. And when we invest in eternity, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Now, I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know exactly what this treasure in heaven means. I don't, I don't know what we're going to receive exactly when we get to heaven. But I do know that it's going to be infinitely worth it. Jesus talks about this idea of a 100-fold investment 
in Matthew chapter 19. We don't know what those treasures will be exactly, but we know it'll be worth it. I appreciate this quote from a missionary who gave his life serving Christ. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can't take our money and our stuff with us. So the best investment of our time and our money is an eternal investment. And when we look at how we spend our money, we can see exactly where our priorities are. Just take, we could take our next credit card statement or, or bank statement and highlight in one color the things that are earthly and in another color the things that are eternal. We could do the same thing with our calendar or our day planner, highlighting in one color the things that are an earthly investment and the other color the things that are eternal. And I think we might realize where our priorities are. So important for us to invest in eternity. And we have to be careful that a text like this doesn't turn into moralism. Moralism, the idea that we somehow earn God's salvific grace by something that we do. But we have to understand that we are not saved by putting money in the offering basket each week. We're not forgiven by serving in the church. We can never be saved by what we do. We're saved by what Jesus did. By grace we've been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast, right? Ephesians 2. But using our time and our money for God's glory is something that you and I do in response to our salvation. Because a generous person understands the magnitude of the gift that he or she's been given. And Jesus lived the life that we needed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die so that we could have life so that we could have a right relationship with him. Jesus has given us the greatest imaginable gift. Forgiveness, reconciliation, a relationship with himself, eternity with him forever. And if you're here this morning and you've never received God's gift of salvation, then today you can turn away from your sin. You can place your trust in Jesus Christ. Give your life to him and and become a Christian. Be the best day of your life. But for those of us that do know Christ, that have that relationship with him, we have to understand that we've been given a far greater gift than a million dollars a month. We've been given the gift of Christ himself. Forgiveness, reconciliation, eternity with God. We've been given the greatest imaginable gift. So as Christians, we should be the most generous people in the entire world, not because we have the most to give, but because we've received the greatest gift. So here's a challenge for us this week. What if we pray a simple prayer and ask, God, how can I use the time and the money that you've given me for your glory? God, how can I use the time and the money that you've given me for your glory? And I'm praying that God will do more than we could even ask or imagine with a church family That's just willing to hold what we have, not with a closed fist, but with an open palm, and to use our time, our resources for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the joy of opening your word and good encouragement for us from the book of 1 Timothy this morning. Teach us to be generous because you've been so good to us. You've been so gracious to us. And we're thankful for each and every gift that you've given, big gifts, small gifts, and everything in between. And may our gratitude for those gifts 
Propel us to be generous with others. Teach us to be generous people, using what you've given us for your honor and for your glory to be a blessing to others, to advance your kingdom. Father, we entrust you with the things that we have. Do a great work with your church that's willing to be used for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.